And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts Education Classes, beginning January 6th for all ages and skills. Guest instructors Andy Jorgensen, Colleen Howe-Blimberger, and Christy Grusendorf. Information at cashearts.org or 435-752-0026. rolling around the bend at night seen the sunshine since i don't know when i'm stuck in Folsom prison and time keeps dragging on but that train keeps rolling welcome to access utah this is sherry quinn a group of utah prisoners are getting an opportunity to give something back to the utah community while also contributing to the scientific community Thanks to two local women. It, you know, it's something that really, when we started it, it was rather utilitarian, self-interested on my part, <laughs> I would have to say. But it, it's a pleasing feeling that perhaps you can actually benefit somebody else at the same time. And so now it's looking to see how can we make this happen, what can we do to make it more possible for everybody. Producer Elaine Taylor talked to Sarah and Mary about their inmate work project, where a small group of prisoners at the Daggart County Jail in eastern Utah catalog, plant, and seed specimens for Utah State University's Intermountain Herbarium collections. My name is Mary Bacchus, and I just retired from Utah State University, but I'm continuing as director of the herbarium there. I'm a plant taxonomist by background. My name is Sarah Lamb. I am the adult education instructor for the Daggett School District in Manila. As Elaine found out, this story begins with a chance meeting at a gardening event in Cache Valley in the fall of 2011. When I was there, I saw a booth that was hosted by the um, Intermountain Herbarium. And as I looked through it, I could see that it was basically a repository for endangered and rare plants and seeds, which was very intriguing to me. And I vowed the next time I came to Logan that I would stop at the herbarium to see what it was all about. And while I was there, I met Michael Peep, who is the assistant curator, and Mary. And the three of us just hit it off, and we each share a love and a deep interest in botany and biology. And Mary knew that, that I, what I do for a living, and she suggested that my inmates, I teach the inmates, um, their high, I help them with their high school diploma, and I help them earn their GED. And they needed some help with a collection that they had received from a retired couple in Arizona of 4,000 specimens. They needed help mounting them on archival paper with archival glue. And so Mary suggested that I have my inmates that I teach work on this project to help them. Mary, could you tell me about the background of the plants, how they ended up here? They ended up here by a bit of a circuitous route. The walkers who were the collectors had a seed business down in Arizona. They would collect seeds and make them available to other people, sell them. And if you want to be sure that you've got the right seeds or you can tell somebody these are these this plant, you have a herbarium specimen to back it up. So they had been doing this for several years. This is how they've been earning their living. But they've gotten to the point where they wanted to um, you know, reduce the size of things and basically get rid of the collection too. But they wanted it to go somewhere useful. 
And they know Pat and Noel Holmgren, who write the Intermountain Flora and have done a lot of exploration and got to know a lot of the botanists in the region and adjacent areas. And so they asked Pat and Noel if they had any idea of who would like to receive these specimens. And Noel's father actually was my predecessor in the Intermountain Herbarium, so he asked whether we would be interested in having them. And I said, yes, because it would strengthen our holdings. I thought it was going to be primarily from southern Arizona and Mexico, but there's also a lot from other parts of the world. Now they have a group of prisoners preparing and cataloging a collection of more than 4,000 plant and seed specimens for the herbarium. Sarah describes the process. We take this, this herbarium glue... It's a very expensive, very nice glue. And archival. <laughs> and archival as well. And glue the specimens back down onto the paper. We don't lift them off and put them on a different piece of paper because that would compromise the integrity of that specimen. Instead, we take the whole thing and glue it onto an additional piece of paper that is archival, provided by the herbarium with archival glue. The guys cut off the label that has been handwritten. We enter that data into the computer with the idea that we will print off the label so that it's easier to read and re-glue it back on there with this archival glue. And then we file them away and, and it's there for hopefully a thousand years, forever and ever. A herbarium is a collection of preserved plant specimens, whole plants or parts of plants, that are each labeled with scientific information about the specimen. They are used as reference material in describing plant types and taxa. You can go back and look at the specimen that they collected and re-examine it and say, yes, that's, yeah, that is, or perhaps, oh, it's something close, but it's not quite the one they said. So we can get a better idea of where species can grow and cannot grow and therefore what the impact of various changes will have on them. It's also um, for learning when people are going out into the field, and I had an inquiry today from somebody who's going to be working in the Uinta Basin, and she wanted to know how could she get to know the plants of that area. She's an environment, working for an environmental company, and I actually referred her to the Uinta Basin herbarium that's in the Vernal campus and said, you know, there would be a source. So it's a teaching thing. They were originally set up. It was a huge technological innovation in the 1500s. Because instead of having to grow your plants in a botanic garden, you dry them, stick them on paper, and now you can put them on the back of a horse and carry them across the Alps in the days when America hadn't been discovered. Well, just <laughs> after. And, and it makes it easy to have plants that you from all over the world that you can study. So in the Intermountain Herbarium, we've got 265,000 specimens, and we've databased about 40%. And slightly over half of them are from what we consider our core district, Utah, Nevada, and Idaho. The rest are from all the way around the world. And so that gives us a context. We're not looking just at our own things. We're looking at them as they occur in neighboring areas. Could you tell me more about the preservation process? Why you had to start switching them over to different papers and different ways of keeping them? Well, I suppose the basic thing is... um, It's the paper that comes in. I I mentioned that herbaria started around, well, it started this way of preserving plants in the early 1500s. Those specimens can still be studied. 
It's relatively inexpensive. I mean, it's not like you have to get a freeze dryer out and do all this equipment. But it really is very, very effective for plants. But the problem is if you get paper that is non-archival or acidic or something like that in that span of 500 years, it's going to become brittle. It may um, have an impact on the plant, but I think mostly it's that the paper becomes brittle and then it no longer provides the support for this plant material, which when it's dry, is very fragile. Storing them for hundreds of years, even thousands, is important because herbarium specimens can show evidence of a change in the climate pattern. It's partly through herbarium specimens that they've been able to demonstrate that there really is, has been a change in the time at which plants flower. So if you've got herbarium specimens of the same plants that have been collected from the same area, then you can go back through to the 1800s and 1700s, which they can in Europe. This idea was tested in the U.S. in 2002. Flowering times during the year 2003 of 229 living plants growing at an arboretum in Boston, Massachusetts were compared with 372 records of flowering times from 1885 to 2002 using herbarium specimens of the same individual plants. During this time, Boston experienced an increase in mean annual temperature. From 1980 on, flowering time became progressively earlier, eight days earlier than in the late 1800s. I had read that you got these plants and they weren't on the right paper. Right but that you couldn't afford to pay like college students to move them onto archival paper. And so this is where you became involved. How, how did you introduce this project to the inmates? Mary actually showed up in Manila one morning to where I work at the jail, and we had a meeting with the county sheriff and presented the idea to him for his final approval, which he was very supportive of and in favor of. And then during my class period, I, I presented it to my inmates and asked them if they would be interested in doing this, and they jumped at the chance. Because for one thing, it gets them out of their sections. It uh, breaks up the monotony of the day. They are able to earn a little bit of money. The cost or whatever they are being paid is, is minimal compared to what Mary would have to pay <clears throat> one of her students. But they earn something. Um, they are aware that they are involved where the biology department from Utah State can come in and take plant samples for genetic studies or DNA testing. So they're involved in that process, even though they're behind bars. It teaches them skills. It maybe introduces interest to them that they may not have had prior to this, so that when they get out, they will have something as a backup for employment or, or whatever. I would like to make the point we have kept the number of students that we hire in the herbarium up because I don't want to deprive the undergraduates of a job. But we are now looking at how can we introduce into it, if you like, some intellectual content, introduce them to some of the concepts such as georeferencing and um, databases and how do you identify a plant, what do you mean by a plant species. So far, basically what we've done has been asked them to help us. And now we're looking a little harder about, without putting them into courses and exams, et cetera, but 
introduce them to some concepts so that when they get out, they'll things will ring bells that might not have rung bells before. You know, they'll feel happier and more at ease, perhaps in going into a technical program that involves something to do with computers or that involves something to do with plants. And so put them a little further ahead. Inmates receive a modest wage that allows them to make purchases at the jail commissary. Contributing to the herbarium boosts their confidence, says Sarah. It gives them a sense of direction, a sense of, of worth. The recidivism rate in the state of Utah is over 80%. So that, to me, says that the rehabilitation process behind bars is not working. So what Mary and I would like to do is to allow these guys the opportunity to learn skills. Like she said, maybe bells will go off that haven't gone off before, so that when they get out, they have an opportunity to, uh, find, to use these skills in a place of employment. How long are most of these men in jail for? It varies on the crimes that they've committed. I have one of my students, his original sentence was 18 months. I have another student whose sentence has been six years. So it, it just, it varies with the degree of the crime they've committed. How, how have they reacted to the program? Do they say that they like it? Do they want to do more? They do want to do more. In fact, we just finished up all of the, the work that needed to be, do, to be done for the Walker collection. And the last thing the guys asked me when I left is, would you please ask Mary if there's something else we can do? <laughs> and actually, one of the things realized that they had done work with, that was a bit more complicated than I had originally envisioned. And we had held some specimens back as being they, they would need more thought going into it. And now I'm looking at it and saying, no, they could do these. They're fine. And so it's been a learning experience for me. And it actually has been very enjoyable, the thought that, okay, there's a group of people here that think for whom it is an enjoyable, different occupation, and um, they're going to learn something. And if we can make it so they learn a little more without thinking that we're going to convert them into botanists or anything like that, but that maybe they might, this is the little thing you don't say too much. <laughs> they might notice a few more plants when they get outside and, you know, be a bit more interested in them. But I think something that, at least for me, I'm ha having to work my way through as to how much we can expect. And the databasing aspect would be a huge help to us. But we want to make it in such a way we've got to do some things because there are restrictions. They, uh, they're not allowed access to the internet. And the program that we use in the herbarium relies on the internet. But at the same time, in working out how we can work without the internet at the Daggett County Jail is helping me because I'm also trying to work with some people who have herbaria in it, places like Iraq and maybe Pakistan and Tajikistan, and realizing that we get used to cheap, easy internet, and we're exceptional in the world. So if we can make it so they could work off the internet in Daggett County Jail, we can make something that will be useful in other parts of the world, too. If we could somehow put this program onto a disk of some sort to where the, the guys can access it without having the internet, then as Mary said, we can expand that and, and take it to other parts of the world, other herbaria. Have you had inmates express interest in taking classes in this field after they're out or pursuing something related to this? 
I've had one inmate express an interest to enroll at Utah State for the fall of, of 2013, and so that's exciting to me. One of the things that I encourage these inmates is to continue on with their higher education. Don't just stop at a GED or a diploma. That's not enough in today's world. They have to have a higher education. It was very thrilling and satisfying for me to, to hear this inmate express his desire to go on to Utah State. The challenge, she says, is motivating the inmates to stay interested in the program. It's not a traditional school setting. There are adults. They don't have to come to school if they don't want to. There are repercussions, but it's not like they're going to get a bad grade or they're going to have a detention or they've gotten a slough. It's a completely different setup. And so there is going to have to be some sort of stops in place to encourage them to come and to give them that motivation. But on the other side of it, though, is that if they're not performing or whatever, then they're cut out of it. And so you've lost the ability to earn the money that you can use in the, the commissary. Right. And you've lost that kind of break in the day. Has this whole process made you more, not willing, but maybe look for other experiences that you can bring into the jail like this? Oh, absolutely. Mary and I have some ideas. Uh, one thing that she suggested is that we that we proposed to Sheriff Jorgensen a chicken raising project. <laughs> this would give them an opportunity to learn about poultry and raise maybe eggs for their breakfast. Maybe they would even learn how to kill the chickens, kill the chickens. <laughs> In which case I could use them if I get some. <laughs> no, um, they probably wouldn't. I mean, I don't know how he would feel about that. But I don't know either. But again, it's, and it's also something that, you know, you could do that after you get out. The benefit then, if nothing else, is just the satisfaction of knowing that you have skills and that you have done something worthwhile. Hmm. In fact, one of the inmates said to me, as I was taking photographs for one of the articles, one of the inmates said to me, oh yes, I would love to have my photograph taken. I would love to be photographed doing something good. You, you seem to have moved from not having any involvement with the inmates to be proposing a lot of ideas. How, how has this changed your perspective on all of this? It's made me look at how can we do it. I've thought about it before. I actually tossed out the ideas to some colleagues a few years ago, but you need to have a connection into the system. I didn't know anybody either inside or outside the jail, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so when Sarah said that she worked with the inmates, it was sort of like, oh, maybe we can do that. And I was asked once why we didn't work with the Cache County Jail, and that's the answer, because Sarah works at Daggett. And, and where Mary and I were friends, it just kind of fell into place. So personal connections make a lot mm -hmm. of difference. But And now looking at it, and, and it's sort of saying, okay, from education background, from the science background, and knowing something about some of the grant funding programs, how can we pull this all together to be of more benefit both to the herbarium, but also to the inmates, because the U.S. has this horrendously high proportion of its population in jail at one time, any one time. And as Phil said, there's the recidivism and rate. And in 2009, the recidivism rate was 60%. So from 2009 to 2013, it has gone from 60% to over 80%. So that says glaringly that something is not working. And not that Mary and I think that we can fix that one. No. We can fix the whole problem. 
but we can certainly do our part, and, and we would like to try that. We would like that opportunity. I am firmly convinced, and I think most of us are, that learning never hurts. You may not go on in that field, but you'll be surprised how often it comes up. You'll be surprised at what doors will open because of what you know and what you can do. And so, absolutely, I agree with that. It, it seems like an untapped resource. Though. It does seem like an untapped yeah. resource, and that's what's so exciting about it, is that we can pretty much do what we want to do, I think. There are mm -hmm. a lot of different components to this, and Mary and I are just beginning to explore them and to see exactly what it is we want to do with these guys and how can we help them, how, how is the best, what is the best thing we can do for them. So yes, it is. It's very exciting. Sarah and Mary are working with the Daggett County Sheriff Jerry Jorgensen on another project called Hoop House that teaches inmates how to grow vegetables for the jail's cafeteria. Thanks for listening. Sherry Quinn for Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Green Valley Spa and Resort in St. George, offering a poetry salon the fourth Thursday of every month. Featuring booked poets, singers, and songwriters, details are at greenvalleyspa.com. Welcome to Science Questions. I'm Sherry Quinn. And I'm Susie Montgomery. This is part one in our series called Adolescent Recovery. It takes a community. There is a substance abuse epidemic in the United States. All drug abuse issues combined cost the U.S. public health system half a trillion dollars a year, and it kills half a million people every year. Drug abuse is the most costly public health problem. Teenagers are especially vulnerable, and teenage substance abuse disorders are on the rise. Just over 2 million youth in the U.S., ages 12 to 17, have a substance use disorder, meaning dependence on or abuse of alcohol or drugs. And each year, fewer than 1% of these young teenagers get the treatment they need. In the last decade, there has been more focus on treatment programs, though post-treatment programs are not nearly as emphasized. And teenagers coming out of rehabilitation have nowhere safe to go. According to the Journal of Groups in Addiction and Recovery, for teenagers, school often sits at the heart of the relapse threat. One study found that virtually all adolescents returning to their old school reported being offered drugs on their first day back. In fact, the leading reasons for adolescents' recidivism is returning to the environment of previous use. Some of our nation's leaders see the importance of addressing this problem immediately and Massachusetts State Senator Stephen Tolman is not waiting for Superman. Before being elected to the Senate in 1998, Senator Tolman worked in the railroad industry and was a union representative, where he witnessed and confronted co-workers who were addicted to painkillers. It seems when somebody gets sick, when somebody gets addicted, when they get hooked on alcohol or pills, the first thing people want to do is pretend there isn't a problem. But there is a problem, and Senator Tolman realized the extent of it across the state of Massachusetts. Now he works with an effective team of advocates, doctors, teachers, politicians, parents, and Massachusetts is now leading the national surge in recovery schools. There are voluntary, safe, and sober public schools for students recovering from addiction to continue their education. The reality is that around uh, the late 90s and the early 2000s, I started to see firsthand 
the devastating effects that OxyContin was having on our communities. And I'm in my 50s now, and, you know, I tried different things growing up. As you grow up, you try different things, you know, and you sort out life when you're trying to find your way. Well, these children were doing something very similar, but what they did is they snorted this OxyContin, and almost like it owned them. It grabbed their brain. In fact, between 2002 and 2007, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, we lost 78 soldiers in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And during that same five-year period in the streets of Massachusetts, we buried 3,265 citizens to the category of poisonous overdoses, which is primarily OxyContin and heroin. And one has to ask, who bears that responsibility? And why can't we get it under control? In recent years, adolescent alcohol and drug use has garnered more attention, carving a much-needed place in discussions of health care reform and education. And recovery schools are a product of this movement. 18-year-old Brandon is a recent graduate from Safe Recovery School in Springfield, Massachusetts. He started smoking cigarettes when he was 10 years old, and that was just the beginning. After doing marijuana for probably about a year and a half from the time I was 12, I decided I want to try something else. So I started drinking, and then that was, I loved drinking. And to be honest, I still love it. I don't want to drink, but I mean, it feels good. Same thing with drugs, they feel good. They're interested in the here and now. How will this make me feel now? Glenn Hansen is the director of the Utah Addiction Center and professor of pharmacology and toxicology at the University of Utah. He is an expert on how addiction affects the brain and behavior. They don't ask the question, well, how am I going to feel in 10 years? Or what is this going to do to me when I'm 40 years old? Will I be fighting brain cancer or cardiovascular disease because of this? That's way, way too far out of their, their scope of appreciation. So they're right about, oh, does this really get me excited and stoked? Uh, within a minute or in a few minutes, and that's very appealing to them. So they're a, a highly vulnerable population to addiction problems. Andy Finch is assistant professor in the College of Education and Human Development at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and once a recovery school teacher. He is now the co-founder of the Association of Recovery Schools. If you understand what goes into a person abusing alcohol and drugs, you would clearly understand it's not a moral failing, that there are so many different elements that go into a child who is 14, 15, and probably was abusing far younger, uh, oftentimes 11, 12, to say that, oh, they're just making a bad choice. There are family elements. There are genetic elements. There are environmental elements, economic elements. There's an awful lot of things, mental health elements. To just say that this kid wants to party too hard and they need to make a different choice is being completely ignorant of what we know about alcohol and drug abuse. And I'll tell you, most of us that have been in the field have known that the science is now catching up and proving it. your basic structural scan that you'll get, um, even the clinical read. It, it looks at the structural anatomy of the tissues. The next one that we're going to do... Dr. Melissa Lopez-Larsen is using the MRI, powerful magnetic resonance imaging technology, to look closely at brain tissue. She's a child psychiatrist and part of a U-Star, 
Utah Science, Technology, and Research Initiative Team at the University of Utah, conducting clinical studies on the effects of marijuana on the adolescent brain. Preliminary research suggests that um, using uh, substances before the age of 16 can really uh, hamper your, your brain development and cause a lot of kind of neurocognitive consequences long term. So in general, adolescence is, is a time with of robust kind of brain changes and you have increased emotional development, increased cognitive development, and increased ability to, to attend to, to goals and to increased ability to make appropriate decisions. And so if you're impacting your brain by giving it substances during those key periods of time, you know, we're pretty convinced that, that you're really going to impact how the brain is going to wire itself. Lopez acknowledges to really understand the impact of marijuana on the brain, they need to continue monitoring the cognitive functioning of these adolescent brains into adulthood to see if, once they quit using, their brains catch up to functioning at the level of an individual who never used. Dr. Glenn Hansen. And the traditional uh, development in an adolescent is that those areas that are important for decision making uh, do not get fully matured until the mid-twenties. So they're, they continue this, this high degree of impulsivity until they get into that later stage, that 20, 25 years of age. And if you can keep them away from the drugs until then, then the chances they'll get into trouble with the drugs goes down dramatically. It's kind of going back to the smoking piece. If you start smoking before you're the age 13, trying to stop smoking as an adult, you've got about 3 to 4% success rate. That means 95, 96% will not succeed. If you start smoking after you're an adult, the success rate is about 95%. So there's a big difference when you start, the effect it's had on your brain, and trying to stop on the other end, uh, that tells you that there have been some developmental changes that have occurred because of the presence of the drug. We can say the same thing about alcohol. We can say the same thing about methamphetamine. We can say the same thing even about marijuana. The earlier you start exposing your brain to this chemistry, the greater the likelihood it's going to change the way development occurs and affect your decision-making later on relative to that drug and relative to other things as well. Before attending Safe Recovery High, Brandon spiraled into a typical pattern of drug use. After drinking, it got into the heavier stuff. I started doing cocaine, and then I got into heroin, first snorting it and then shooting it. And that's when it really hit me, because I always thought, oh, I'll never do that. Even if I just smoke a little bit of weed or something, then I'm never going to do heroin. I'm never going to do any of the hard drugs. But it finally hit me, and before I knew it, I was stealing money from my mom and dad, stealing on an average couple hundred dollars a week when I was 14 or 15. How are you stealing it? I was just walking into my mom's room, stealing, grabbing her purse and just grabbing all the money I could get. Then they found, figured out that I was stealing from them and they said something to me and I denied it. They knew I stole it. I knew they knew. I just still denied it. I just didn't want to accept what I was doing.
By 15, Brandon ended up hustling drugs and in a violent gang. Or once you're down with a gang or whatever, you can't get out. Why did you stop hanging out with them? I got a reality check when I almost had to kill somebody. And everybody was saying, pull the trigger, pull the trigger, man, da da da. And I couldn't do it. So I realized this is bad, I can't do this anymore. So I dropped the gun and I walked away, grabbed the bus and I went home. In his freshman year, he transferred to a vocational school, but that didn't work either. Nothing seemed to work. I was in the machine shop and I started making a lot of bowls, like for smoking and stuff, a lot of paraphernalia. And I got caught doing that and I got caught with drugs, got caught selling them, buying them, using them, all that stuff. And they asked me to leave, otherwise they were gonna pretty much have me get arrested. So I left after my freshman year. And then my sophomore year, I was at my, my hometown school, Munson High, except I only lasted three days before getting suspended. And then I got hospitalized after an incident that happened at my house. We might live like never before. There's nothing to give Well, how can we ask for more? After running away from home, an overdose, and multiple treatment programs, Brandon found a school that accepted him as a recovering addict. And then I came to Recovery High my sophomore year. Like, I didn't think it was possible, but people had worse experiences. They shared their life stories, and we were all just really comfortable with each other. So I just feel my sorrow with the words you borrow from the only place to know. Brandon entered the Safe Recovery High School in Springfield, Massachusetts. Recovery schools are public schools with highly structured programs and extra support staff like police officers, drug counselors, and staff who administer regular drug testing. One of the most successful schools in the nation is North Shore Recovery High School in Beverly, Massachusetts, run by Michelle Opinski, a charismatic principal. She's also an avid lobbyer and advocate for publicly supported recovery. She is really approachable and popular. And so when I finally cornered her for an interview, we had to slip away from an entourage of students and colleagues. Even then, her phone was still going off with a stream of incoming text messages from her students. When I started this high school, I thought everybody wanted to come in and be sober and yay, sing kumbaya and get all better. <laughs> and as I've turned to find out, uh, addiction just in adolescence typically isn't, doesn't look like that, where students get better and then that's it, and then they're better for the rest of their lives. There's slips and falls, and we need to be there for them and kind of root them through that. And, figure out what they need. Lipinski says that not only do they listen to students and try to meet quite individualized needs, but previous students are a powerful tool in motivating the newer recovery students. You do drug testing. I have mandatory urine screens. So try to get 56 kids urine screened in two hours. And we're talking observed screens, you know, somebody going in there, a third party going in there with them, watching them screen, signing it, doing it. Okay, trying to find all 56 and make sure they're screened in two hours. Um, 
takes a, an army, a cadre, if you will, of, of graduates who have gone through that and kind of know how they were like, oh, I had to do it, so you got to do it, kind of thing. When I, when I put my licensed social worker out there, they don't listen to them. So just you keep tweaking it based on what you see students react to, I guess. Education views and policies on substance abuse and mental health typically are that students will eventually be kicked out or will drop out. Before starting a recovery school, Lipinski taught biology at a standard public high school where she noticed a major problem. I guess maybe um, I saw that the, the dynamic in, in education was changing and a lot more students were needing a lot more social-emotional support. I had 120 students at the beginning of the school year, so, you know, 20, 30 kids per class and, and all varying levels. And I remember really distinctly at the beginning going, oh, my goodness, 100 papers, 100 lab reports, 100 everything. That's a lot. Like, that's a lot, right? So, <laughs> and then at the end of it, I only had 82. Like, I lost almost 40 students that year. And then you just see, like, the whole back row of your class not there anymore or not doing anything or I call them in-school dropouts. They come into school, they get high, they fall asleep. And you look down and you see pot mushrooms and pot plants and everything on top of their papers and they're drawn and they're like sketching and they're telling me, hey, look at me, I'm doing mushrooms and smoking weed and I'm sleeping in a class and I'm failing. And I was like, well, at least he's here. Like I, that really, nobody taught me what to do. Many teachers are in her position. Over 30 students in a classroom and they just can't get to all the students. She decided to do something about it. Went back to school and got my ed leadership degree and I was working and I realized that I needed to start an alternative school through just a series of, you know, fortunate, unfortunate, whatever you may call them, events. And um, I started this alternative school, much to the dismay of my building principal and my superintendent who said, no, 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 you're going to hate it. I'm like, why would you want to do that? Those are for those bad kids. But I'd realized by this point in time, those were the students I wanted to teach. And But you're such a qualified person. And I said, yes, and that's why they deserve to have a qualified teacher. And um, so I started the Salem High Alternative Program back in 1999. She started an alternative school first, which was a stepping stone to her building a recovery school later that would deal strictly with substance abuse and mental illness. And uh, lo and behold, 2001 hit with the onslaught of OxyContin in our area and other prescription drugs hit hard, really, really hard. And I started seeing kids coming in and doing things I hadn't seen before, which was kind of nodding off, falling asleep, kind of just not present, eyes pinned. But I, didn't know, I still didn't know what that was. And nobody in my graduate classes said, oh, this is what little Johnny's going to look like when he's you know, smoking crack or when he's shooting heroin or snorting pills. So I didn't know. And I thought, that, well, at least they're coming to school. So I did night rides with probation officers on Thursday nights. And we would see these kids. And they'd be in their element. And it'd be kind of fun, you know. And you just kind of harass them. But you have that you know, funny interaction with them anyway because you're not just that teacher and then I started losing kids to addiction and whether they stopped coming to school and then I would read about them in the paper and it, it just says like accidental death not too many people were really stated as an overdose so it's say accidental death and of course we all knew what was happening and um, so 2003 2004 really same thing was kind of happening and I kept telling my superintendent hey just so you know we kind of have a problem here the superintendent did listen his own son had a heroin addiction and a recovery school was opening. He wanted Lipinski to lead it. While nursing a baby, she found herself applying and accepting a job as the principal of the North Shore Recovery School in Beverly, Massachusetts, feeling her way through the dark. I'm really not taking it seriously. I'm like, yeah, recovery school, what is that? They're like, well, we don't know yet. Like, 
all right, well, this is a challenge already to start a school that nobody knows what the hell they're doing in Massachusetts. That's a, do we have a model? Yeah, no. Do we have a student? Nope. Do you have a building? Nope. Teachers? No. Curriculum? No. Do I have a phone? No. Do I have a computer? No. We'll give you a laptop, though. That, I had a laptop. And I got to sit underneath the superintendent's office and steal it for about the first four months. Laptop in hand, she began to build the school, starting with strategically recruiting good teachers. And then I said, you know, I, you know, how much do you make? <laughs> and she told me, I go, I can beat that by $15,000. And she was like, oh, are you still at the alternative school? And I was like, well, no. <laughs> I'm actually starting this new school. And she goes, well, who are we teaching? I go, Dina. We have Dina. This is who we're teaching so far. But I could still pay you this money, and all we have to do is teach Dina so far. <laughs> and we get to develop curriculum for Dina. Since then, the school has grown to around 60 students with a staff of 11 teachers, and their philosophy is simple. And really what I've learned is just it's humor, chocolate, and um, relentlessly making fun of the students. And that works because they have a good sense of humor. But it's not just humor and chocolate. I go to the emergency rooms, whatever. Kids have puked on me, and then they've told me to F off. And, and at the end of the day, it, they come back and they're better. They hug me. And they make amends and they get up and they're better. So that's why I do what I do. There are more deaths from the misuse of prescription pain medications than cocaine or heroin in the U.S. Utah is fourth in the nation for non-medical use of painkillers. Dr. Lynn Webster. I'm medical director of LifeTree Clinical Research and Pain Clinic in Salt Lake City. He sees high-risk patients with chronic pain substance abuse problems, usually with opioids, and often mental illnesses. Opioids suppress pain and can often lead to a feeling of euphoria. Dr. Webster specializes in developing guidelines for physicians to better administer and monitor prescription pain medications. If we learn about this, if we can understand how we may be contributing to that problem, then maybe we can help solve the problem. For one of his presentations on the abuse of pain medications, Lipinski and her students took part and presented on recovery schools. I felt that if we could create an educational system like Michelle uh, and take the kids who have gotten into trouble and place them in a different educational environment, we may give them a chance to live and have a productive life. And so. I've been thinking that we need such, such a community here in Utah, and I think we can have a big impact not only on the lives of individuals, but also on the cost of health care in our community. There are dozens of auxiliary costs from substance abuse that add up to billions of dollars nationally and millions of dollars in the state of Utah alone. Costs for incarceration, lost wages, rehab, and costs associated with the treatment of other medical problems stemming from the illicit use of pain medications. And we all pay for the diverted pharmaceuticals, drugs that are stolen or sold for illicit purposes. Then there are about 13 to 15,000 unintentional overdose deaths annually in the U.S. from prescription medications, and Utah about 450 each year. The average cost of substance abuse in Utah is $17,000 per person. That is just for medical care, not including treatment programs, compared to an average cost of $4,000 per person without the disease of addiction. These are human beings. 
These are good human beings that have just made some bad choices. And because of their genetics and because of the environment and or environment, they get into trouble. Just like a lot of us get into trouble, particularly if we overeat and we have diabetes or heart disease. It's a medical condition. In fact, scientists such as Glenn Hansen at the University of Utah refer to a new science of addiction. They are studying how genetics influence changes in the brain that result in a compulsive desire to use a drug. The, the genetic piece of addiction is about vulnerability. It's not about inevitability. And so that's always something you need to clarify up front. And from what we can tell, it looks like the genetic part or the heritability part is responsible for anywhere from 40 to 60 percent of uh, addiction vulnerability. And they've identified somewhere close to 100 different genes that might be associated with various pieces of addiction, anywhere from they're more inclined to to start using the drug or they're more interested in one drug over another. Uh, some of it may have to do with self-medicating various pieces of psychiatric disorders, things like ADHD, they have a higher incidence of abuse. People that have mood disorders, depression, or bipolar or schizophrenics, they have higher incidence of drug abuse and those are genetically linked. So that may be why there's this genetic uh, component to it. Another part may be uh, how difficult is it to get off of a drug once you become addicted, and that may be dictated by genetics as well. Impulsivity, people that have a high degree of impulsivity have a much harder problem with uh, addiction. So if you're in a group where the peer pressure is exerted, uh, adolescents are very susceptible to peer pressure. And typically, when a student submits to this peer pressure, our society reacts by treating them as criminals. Barbara Frey is a psychologist in Utah who early on in her career recognized the need for more compassion and a better overall understanding of adolescent mental health and drug treatment services. And by the time you finally notice, the kid's in trouble. The kid's in jail. The kid's in front of the principal looking at an expulsion. So we're missing the symptoms. And the, we know there's data showing that the earlier we get care, these kids enter treatment in their disease, the earlier they learn how to manage it. And the, as soon as they learn how to manage it, the more productive and the better quality of life they're going to have. And so this is about improving their quality of life, which improves their family's quality of life, which improves the quality of life for our society because then they're contributing rather than needing to take advantage of a lot of services in society. So rather than waiting till they're in jail, if we can get to them early, before there's so much pain that's caused in their life and in their family's lives and their friends' lives and in the community, then we've made a good investment. Recovery schools are not the cure-all, but they are often the last resort for students who are trying to overcome addiction in a world where drugs are readily available and where illicit drug use persists at a daunting and dangerous rate. These recovery schools are providing a much-needed service and saving lives. Massachusetts State Senator Steve Tolman. It's the best bang for the buck. If you turn one person around or save one life, you can't put a dollar sign on that. In these schools, we started with $750,000, and then it was 500 half a million dollars after that every year. And then we had 
uh, cooperation from the unions. We, everything worked together. It's not a big cost. In fact, really, it's foolish not to have this concept up because that's the thing. is you just got to push forward and establish it. It's like what they say about the stadium. Build it and they will come. Build it and they will come. Luckily, one of them was there for Brandon. I just live my life, and whatever comes, comes, and whatever, whatever happens, happens. But everything happens for a reason, and I think that the whole gang involvement and all the heavy usage of drugs was a purpose for me because that brought me to recovery school, and that changed my life. Brandon got sober and found a good mentor at the recovery school who introduced him to scuba diving. As soon as I got in that pool that first time, I loved it, and I've loved it ever since. He got his advanced diving certification, and his father turned him on to underwater welding. And now Brandon wants to attend a school in New Jersey to pursue his career. I love welding. I love diving. I love swimming. I love it all. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. Hi, I'm Bevan Kilpack. I'm 59 years old. I was serving for the, at that time, six national forests in Utah. And uh, we got a memo from the Chief of the Forest Service out of Washington, D.C., that offered an opportunity for the National Forests in Utah to submit a proposal to provide the National Christmas Tree to Washington, D.C. Because Utah um, became a state in 1896, we submitted it as uh, the Utah Centennial Tree in 1996. Uh, we worked with the Centennial Committee because they were doing lots of uh, activities around Utah and we became the culmination happening in December of 1996. So the National Christmas Tree going to D.C. was the culmination of the centennial activities that year. I asked all the national forests in Utah to start looking for, for trees that we could pick. Now, I didn't select the tree, but the capital architect, he's actually the capital landscape architect from Washington, D.C., flew out to Utah. We went on a uh, two-day trip. And we went to the mountains of those three forests and looked at anywhere from, oh, it, it was probably close to 35 trees, the best ones that they, they had. He didn't tell us, but he knew which one he wanted on the end of the first day uh, on the Manti LaSalle National Forest, which is near Price. It came time to cut the tree. And uh, we, had, we were, had been waiting for this. Uh, for a long time. November 15th was, a, uh, was the date we chose to cut the tree in Huntington Canyon for that. So we had a big celebration. So anyway, 9.30 in the morning, the tree, uh, we, we had a celebration and then they cut the tree. But when that tree finally came off, that it rolled and it fell off the stump and it just jolted everybody and the tree we had people holding, you know, guy guy ropes and everything, and it just rolled off of there and hit hard on the ground, and it, it hit so hard that I thought it was going to break it in half. And I, I've been haunted by that forever because what if it would have broke and broke in half, and then we had to go to Plan B? It would have been awful. <laughs> Up and all the snow that was in the tree came out because it was just it just jolted itself, 
and the snow came out and, and covered everybody. So anyway, we cut the tree. Everybody left at 10.30, 11 o'clock that night. We were still up in the canyon poking this tree into that truck. Uh, was still trying to get it in, in that truck. And so from that point on, we started doing celebrations in Utah. And because of the donations we had received from different counties, I wanted to honor them. And so we took the tree to the different places, Box uh, Elder County and Salt Lake and Provo and, and a lot of places that had made big donations. We left Salt Lake City on the 19th. And then finally, we, we end up going into Washington, D.C. on the 2nd of December. And we, were, we had um, a police escort all the way. It was approximately 20 miles uh, into the city. And of course, we delivered the tree to the Capitol, um, to, the, um, to the Capitol architect. And at that point, we are now excused from the main tree. And they, they, they take the tree over to the, where they have a big casing, where they plant the dirt, set the tree down into a casing hole and then they start working on it, on the decorations for a week. It was wonderful. So it was really a special time. On the 8th of December, the Speaker of the House, at that time it was Newt Gingrich, uh, flips the switch to turn on the lights. Our 100 voice choir sang. Um, at the same time Newt Gingrich flipped the switch on the light in Washington, D.C., I was on the phone with Jackie Levitt, who was Governor Levitt, at that time's wife in Utah, and we flipped the lights at the same time, and everybody in Utah was there, as, as bright and as beautiful with a capital behind it. And, and you know what, it, it, and, it, and it held onto its own shape, and that when it was lit up, it still had its own identity. It still had those little holes, and you knew it was our tree, so they didn't mess with it. Um, but it, it was just so, so proud. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Now accepting holiday orders for chocolate Yule Logs, chocolate bread, and Stolen, the traditional German holiday fruit bread. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KUSU FM HD1 Logan.